0: final season of RoyCast, the original succession podcast. My name is Brendan and joining me as always is my co-host Gabby. Hello, Gabby.
1: Hello, Brendan. Hi, everybody.
0: Our guest today is a former staff writer for Rolling Stone. You can find his work in such publications as The Guardian, Vulture, and Little White Lies. We're very happy to welcome Charles Bermesco to the RoyCast. Hello, Charles. Hello. I'm very excited to be here. Here for one of the headier sort of busier hours of this season in terms of plot, we're going to forgo the usual kind of top line plot summary that we usually do for these episodes, which is usually just to get a bit of context and make sure that we at least, you know, recap the major plot points of the episode for everybody before we, as usual, kind of pinball around and talk about the stuff that interests us and delights us. But here there is kind of so much going on, not just on like business terms, but like context for the characters and their emotional journeys that go back to last season and the business mechanics that go back to last season that what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to move in a linear fashion at least for this first section through the major points of the gojo negotiation and the negotiation with lucas matson and try to make sure that we get a good understanding of all those events and then we'll circle back around and and talk about all the other fun stuff uh that that delighted us about this episode
1: yeah we got a, a i i got a few confused messages in a similar vein to last season's shareholder meeting episode like can you guys please tell me what just happened <laughs> because i have no idea and i'm seeing all these tweets about this person won this and did this with the deal and i just didn't see any of it so i think in general you're probably overthinking it especially if you're, you know you're a listener of, of this podcast we, we, we know that you know you understand the show um I'm, so, I'm yeah. here to.
2: Uh, I'm here to represent the contingent oh. of people who were sending those confused messages, I because I think <laughs> I was going The say end you of this would... <laughs> episode, but I was like, that was a terrific hour of television. And <laughs> I grab my phone and I Google, "What does SEC stand for?"
0: Yeah, the the Homer Simpson. Brilliant. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, I mean,
1: <laughs> <laughs> we are not business experts. Um, there, you know, there are other business experts you can listen to for takes on the show, but. Uh, <laughs> But why would you want to? (laughs) You know the business architecture of the show, the corporate architecture, to use you know Kendall phrase. You know it's secondary; it always is, and we don't want anyone to get too bogged down in you know these mechanics. But we will go through it and just make sure everybody's kind of like, you know, is is uh is up to speed. But it's it's not that complicated. You know, it's it's a whole lot of bluster and bullshit, and they you know do that on purpose because they want you to show to, to they want you to know that. At the end of the day this is all just a lot of you know moving money around and making people richer and doesn't really amount to much um, saying, the yes.
3: Say,
0: <laughs>
2: saying the biggest number.
1: Yes,
0: saying the biggest number all as we go all the way back to the pilot sometimes it is a big dick competition. And it's a yeah. bit more complicated than that in this episode but these are good things to kind of keep in mind. So we want to kind of back up and zoom out a bit and talk about the actual Gojo deal. A big reason that this is kind this episode was a little bit head turning, a bit difficult to get your bearings as a viewers you know, because this deal and the characters started talking about it towards the middle, towards the end of season three. And we picked it up again a bit at the beginning of this season, but then of course that was disrupted by the death of Logan Roy. And so we kind of all set we set all this stuff aside for a couple of weeks. Like it's only been a couple of days for the characters, but as viewers, we set this aside for a couple of weeks and now we're having to go, oh yeah, what was that about? So why is Waystar uh, selling to Gojo? Why did Logan agree to sell in the first place? So we've spoken before about the era of kind of, The era that we're currently in, the era of kind of corporate consolidation that the show is describing with this plot line in the media industry. We can think about real life parallels like the acquisition of Fox by Disney and Warner Media by Discovery, to name two prominent examples. Basically the business case is that Waystar, which in the show is implied to be this very old school company that has a big, maybe, you know, content library, you know, like a like a Warner Media or a Fox. um, you know, they they need the tech know-how that a tech company like Gojo, which is said to have this very good streaming service, uh, can bring to the table in order to leverage those assets uh, to compete going forwards, basically in the in the tech era, in the streaming era. You know, there are references in the dialogue that echo, you know, Disney acquiring Star, which is a global TV network with cricket and other sports rights around the world through their deal with Fox. So there's all kinds of parallels in the play there, and and Logan's decision to sell in the third season finale, if we remember, it felt kind of impulsive. But, you know, it make business sense. And it's also tied up with this emotional context of him giving up on Roman as successor, along with his other children, who he's pretty much, you know, he's lost all interest or hope in. And he'd rather start fresh. That was all the stuff about him, you know, maybe trying for another kid with Carrie. This all this stuff about Logan really wanting something new. And at the beginning of this season, Logan had carved out in this deal a piece for himself by holding on to ATN, holding on to the news operation and selling the rest of the company. You know, and the kids saw their opportunity to interfere with that deal by withholding their approval on the board along with Sandy and Stewie, who thought that the price should be higher. And Logan was in a tough spot there because Matson was unwilling to go higher while still honoring that ATN carve-out. And Logan was on his way to renegotiate when he died, with the implication that that kind of revitalizing quest for a new challenge, for new conflict had actually exhausted his remaining life force. So that's where we are basically at the beginning of this episode. You know, as Ken says, they're going to try to bleed the Swede, to try to goose the price while still retaining the ATN news operation for the combined deal that they want to set up with Pierce.
1: Right. And then ultimately, uh, Matson decides that he wants to hold on to ATN and that leads to the you know numbers conversation towards the end. Um, but you know, my question that I had here and I didn't discuss it with Brendan ahead of time because I just, you know, kind of wanted to talk about it and flesh it out on the pod. Um, so does this result basically the, the, the ATN inclusion in the deal imply that Pierce is dead because what the kids plan plan was to, to take Pierce and, um, and ATN and sort of you know, merge them into this, you know, sort of new um, hybrid, newsy, you know, their own spin off of it. But now, you know, they're they're going to sell the whole kit and caboodle. So what does that mean for Pierce?
0: Well, I definitely think that's the question going forward, because although it seems like Matson has gotten his way at the end of the episode, which we'll work up to here, uh, the kids definitely, I think Roman and Kendall specifically are not going to give up on, you know, trying to hang on to that piece for themselves. And yeah. just talking about, you know, the kids' interest themselves in the deal, you know, if we remember back in season three, Shiv and Roman were, you know, in that room in episode eight, and they were on board with the deal when it looked like they were going to acquire Gojo or even, you know, do a sort of merger as equals, merger of equals, as they said. But they turned against it along with Kendall when it became clear that Gojo would acquire Waystar outright and that their opportunity to lead the company would likely... Vanish as a result. And despite Logan's assurances that Matson quote-unquote rates them, you know, (laughs) meaning, you know, he's assured of their competence and would, you know, keep them on in leadership roles, I know that's not a guaranteed thing, and it's nothing like, you know, having your dad still in charge of the company or handing it over to you. And they all have emotional reasons, of course, especially in the immediate aftermath of their father's death for wanting to continue steering the family business. We've talked about those many times. And the fact that the sticking point in this deal is ATN is what kind of freights the episode with a lot of its portent. There is another load-bearing reference, uh, as many of the previous episodes had. They keep they keep dropping this stuff in there. They're paying out this line when uh, you know, Shiv reveals that she's just gotten this information that the Jared Mencken campaign is sitting in on ATN editorial meetings. So there's so in all the episodes so far, they're still, they're still dropping little things about the presidential election, about the ATN storyline, you yeah. know, things that we're expecting to pay off at some point again. Not trying to predict where the show's going, but it, it sure seems like they're letting out some line here that they're going to pay off.
1: Yeah. The the ATN stuff is, you know, I mean, we're halfway through the season now and, uh, you know, they're teasing us with it a little bit. We still haven't seen Mencken. I was kind of surprised that Shiv seemed a little bit scandalized. Uh by the, the news that Megan sits on the ATN editorial meeting, I would think with her background that she kind of like she knows, she knows the game here.
0: Are they are they crossing a bridge there? Is that is that is that a line that perhaps is it not been crossed before? We remember the way that they usually talk about ATN. The way they talked about it back in season one was that you know Logan doesn't have to tell them what to do because the editorial sort of operation, you know, they just right. kind of they implement this agenda, their quote-unquote news agenda, meaning their horrible reactionary right-wing right. agenda uh, by themselves. So perhaps previously, you know, you, you know, if you think about the way, like, in real life, you know, Fox News was said to have, you know, lines in t- to Trump, it was mostly, like, his relationship with, like, specific hosts, right? Like, he would just call yeah. Tucker. He would just call Hannity. Um, it wasn't necessarily, right. like, them actually sitting in on, like— a- editorial meetings and things like that. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe this is something something new for their operations. And again, it's also uh, pointed that they blame this on Sid Peach. That's what Roman says. It's like, well, that's Sid' thing. She's across that, that sort of piece of the operations. Another Sid reference. When are we going to see all this payoff of Sid Pete, with Jeannie <laughs> Berlin? We're dying. We're dying for this. How, how are you feeling about that, Charles? Are you waiting to see some Jeannie Berlin?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, obviously huge Jeannie Berlin fan. over here. I just saw her uh, earlier this week. She's wonderful in the new Nicole Hollis in her film, uh, You Hurt My Feelings. She's the oh. cantankerous mother of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Um, oh. No, but just uh, I think one of the aspects of ATN as a you know chip of power that's not to be uh, underestimated is that it is kind of the last remaining way for Shiv to keep Tom under her thumb so long as they retain ATN they retain control over his professional fate and what happens to him which as we see in this episode is something that she likes uh wielding over him and using as she pleases yeah yeah that's yeah that I
0: think that's also going to be huge going forward And it's a big part of this episode that we're gonna that we're gonna get to um you know talking about again what that ATN storyline and what that the fact that they're all fighting over in this episode means, you know, we've discussed in the last two episodes, you know, Kendall feeling his old addictive drive and his urge to get back into the business. And he's the one who broaches the idea of killing the Gojo sale to Roman, who turns decisively himself against selling by the end of this hour. At this point in the series, you know, just knowing that at this point, we are exactly halfway through this final season. we got five episodes left. and all these decisions have the feeling of like this is like the last off ramp, right? Like these like all it's all everything is kind of locking these characters into the path they're on, a bad path. And as the show keeps ATN and the upcoming election on the viewers' minds, I feel like it's pointing out that the kids are on a trajectory towards a disastrous outcome, you know, one that they won't inherit from Logan but actually own themselves.
1: You feel the absence of Logan here throughout this episode. It's the first, you know, off-campus episode without Logan, and um, you know, usually, <laughs> usually, usually they have him to to sort of look at to to gauge every reaction, every word, everything that he says. And here they're sort of adrift, and. Um, it's it's tough for them. Um, you know, I, they ask a couple of times throughout this episode, like, you know, what would Logan do? What would dad do? But they don't really know, because we know that Logan made these business decisions, uh, you know, from gut, from his instinct and in real time, sort of just based on how he felt. And um, the kids haven't exactly harnessed this skill, Kendall, a little bit. I mean, he steps up as as trying to lead here and he does all right. But um, yeah, I mean, without dad's leadership you know they're they're confused there are so many different factors at play now they're stuck between gojo being dad's deal he really wanted to get the deal done um and it's 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 a way forward um but there's also all this pride and sentimentality of of the family gig that of course you know undergirds uh the whole show and all of logan's decision making so you know abstractly there's there's grief Practically, there's you know the paper from last week that Kendall's thinking about the the kids' final conversation, pressuring Logan to renegotiate that, you know, led to his death on the plane. Um, Dad, you know, Logan telling Roman that he wanted him for ATN in their last in person conversation. Um, You know, ATN sort of being Logan's crown jewel and and kind of the entire emotional thrust of of the family business. There's a lot um, going on here when, um, you know, I think if Logan were still around, you know, the kids would be happy to take a little bit more of a ancillary role, but, um, you know, it's tough. They have to step up here. It's been what, like two days since their dad died and they're back on the plane that he stroked out on
3: <laughs> and yeah, we're, not gonna try to,
0: we're not gonna try to parse the timeline again here it does seem like we've skipped forward a little bit right like we thought yeah, if we were, bit, if we were yeah. going consecutively we would have thought this would be sunday but it looks like it's at least a monday it looks like it's at least a work day yeah Thursday,
1: i mean matt's matt's in bringing remarks everybody
0: into the office roman yeah.
2: talks you- about it not having been a long time he talks about it having a week of still a yeah. couple
1: a, a couple of days. Uh, the the only reason we know it's like moved into the next week is because of uh, Mattson mentions. You know the stock went down by I don't know what it was thirty on Friday, and then Ken rebuts that with but you know back up twenty on Monday. So um, it's it's definitely not the next day, but uh, it's also not been weeks either. It's it's you know they're still they're still very uh, you know the wound is fresh.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So moving to that, moving into that kind of first, uh, first negotiation meeting with Matson. So in raw numbers, as they're going up in this ski lift and parlay with Matson, you know, uh, there's this great business where Kendall is scrawling on this sort of like whiteboard clipboard that he's holding up. They're looking for the number is 144. They're looking for 144 dollars per share, um, to sell Waystar minus ATN. Um, right. So in that initial meeting with Matson. Uh, he surprises them by making an offer of 187 per share, which is, but that's for Waystar including ATN. So they hadn't really been prepared to entertain that offer. So there's not really a sense of like, oh, I mean, is that the right number? It sounds like a lot more, but we're not really sure. Like, is that the right number? Um, so they kind of have to take that back with them. Uh, but just you know, talking in, talking a bit more about that about that first scene because this is where we start getting into, well, the character of Matson and getting into all this great business with Alexander Skarsgård as Madsen, he really just hits them with this barrage of bully tactics throughout the episode. He shows up alone after asking them to bring the C-suite with them and, you know, makes, sort of embarrasses them by saying, oh, you had to bring all these people and I came by myself. Uh, he one-ups them on the dead dad front by talking about how his dad, <laughs> you know, like killed himself at a BMW or something. Um, you know, he, he openly mocks them when uh, they sort of trip over each other's words. Then he does this uh, very obnoxious bit where he makes a joke offer of one dollar for the whole company, which they both like completely know. So so
1: annoying! (laughs) Very, very annoying,
2: right? Um, I was like fully willing to believe that there was some financial imperative. I was like, oh, he's got it all figured out. I really thought that he knew something that they didn't, and that that would go somewhere. And I did not realize that was a bit. uh, No, I did not
0: yeah on the the slate buddy podcast he was he was doing the, he was doing the secret one dollar move that a lot of most folks don't know about this you know businessmen hate this this one weird trick um, <laughs> in the post show interview you know Jeremy strong said that Skarsgård gave them a counterweight to kind of replace Logan's presence dramatically just like as a heavy um and that's true for the character but you know as well as the actors you know we've Previously mentioned that Matson tends to kind of shift his demeanor and his tactics, depending on who he's meeting. And here he's got these two bereaved sons, and he kind of daddies them. He kind of plays, you know, Alpha Papa with the two of them. He he steps up and just kind of tries to, like, shove them around like he thinks Logan might. But in this first scene, you know, obviously, uh, one of the things that is also hard to get your one of the reasons this episode is a little bit difficult to understand at first blush is because this character is just all over the place. He's so obnoxious. He's so irritating. Um, yeah. But in a great way, right? Like, I was just thinking about Scarsgard for me, like, climbing up into that S tier of Succession guest stars And I realized the other day when someone mentioned this to me, I no longer think of him in association with the show True Blood at all. Like he used to be the True Blood guy. Um, And he's not at all. Like he's, I mean, obviously like he's become much much more successful. You know, he's, you know, he's a movie star now, but he's also found this nice kind of groove as a character actor almost as he's aged and he's started taking roles that don't, just lean on his good looks and they allow him to be funny and even incredibly irritating. Um, I also kept thinking during the early press for this season where it was like all the cast talking about how much they're going to miss each other. And then Alexander Skarsgård, it reminds me so much of when Paul Rudd talks about like being around for the friends finale and like everybody like group hugging and crying. And he's just there being like, wow, guys, what a long strange trip this has been.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even seeing Skarsgård's name in the, opening title credits is weird right it's like you know here's this like movie star now and and uh, yeah it, it just they, they tend to you know pick guest stars who are you know vaunted theater actors who aren't necessarily well known and last season they went kind of hard with the you know adrian brody and the skarsgard character and we weren't really sure um where alex was going to take this but it, it's, it's definitely getting interesting and and you know, I I always uh, recognized him from True Blood. I, I I wasn't a particular fan of that show, but one summer in college, all my friends watched, and it was just on a loop twenty four seven. So I ended up taking some of it in. But um, I didn't really you know he wasn't on my radar until Big Little Lies season one, which he won an Emmy for, and rightfully so. That was an unbelievable performance, and probably. Probably his big break and, and what's led to, um, you know, sort of what's going on um, in his career now and, and the interesting roles that he's, he's been able to take. Um, he went toe-to-toe with Nicole Kidman there and, um, you know, I, I just, I loved the first season of Big Little Lies. Um, so, you know, it's funny because he thought, you know, he, he would always remark that after that performance he thought he would have a really hard time finding roles because he was going to be typecast as this villain. Um, but he's actually done really well for himself in the sort of like freak slash villain adjacent world. Um, and I think we, we, you know, we needed this episode to make the rest of the series work if Gojo is sort of going to be part of the, the grand finale. Um, yeah. And the way that he like <laughs> the character, uh, he makes them trek up and down in that fucking sky trolley when he's you see him taking a helicopter back and forth like can you imagine if they made late stage logan ride right up on that thing he might have died in there uh even with one like frank and carl are in there you see them they're like <laughs> sweating a little bit they're like you guys want to run through this one more time i mean it's it's so ridiculous and um he 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 starts big dogging the boys he takes his shirt off in like a very deliberate way to show off his you know conventional attractiveness as, as is broad she- as Shiv says, yes, he's he's broad. Tom, I thought you were broad, but then he's I saw this in, guy. Uh, he's a
0: Northman shape.
1: <laughs> yeah, so in Northman shape, right? Yeah, like some serious Viking shit. And the boys, you know, they look small and petite. And, you know, he is this big, buff, you know, uh, handsome man. And, you know, the mention of the father's suicide was... It was so weird and kind of callous in a way that you really couldn't even feel proper empathy for him, despite it being like a serious drama to discover your, you know, dead dad in the garage and his car. Um, good reminders that the Roy's could have turned out even worse. Um, you know, and, and the boys, they hang in there in these conversations, but they they look small. They look childish. Um, they're kind of dressed in like these soft clothes and sweaters, like this cross between you know, grief wear and their idea of like Scandi casual, but it definitely doesn't pop. They don't, you know, look particularly appealing. There's there's no shared language between the boys and Matson. And, and there really hasn't been from the start. I mean, if you remember the first time we met Matson and too much birthday at Kendall's birthday party, um, the initial Ken Matson encounter. You know, remember how weird that was that the privacy pussy pasta thing um, and then Roman having to bust his ass in that episode to try and make inroads with him, which he does successfully, you know, only eventually to kind of have another weird encounter with him in Italy. I mean, this is not a, a relationship that that uh, feels natural, but, you know, you contrast that with Shiv here, who we'll talk about later, um, who through some, you know, some luck and, and some acumen is able to, you know, kind of connect with him.
2: Uh, I think you see with Alexander Skarsgård, HBO, their casting department really sticks to their portfolio of people yes. and has gotten <laughs> so much play with them and especially like this little canon of alexander skarsgard premium cable uh you see that his career is really like variations on the theme of masculinity which with his physique is an unavoidable thing that he is like such an imposing presence and I think th- these various shows enjoy perverting that in all these different ways. Like, in True Blood, he shows up as this... He is the ripper of the bodice and this bodice ripper. But then over time, you see that he's, like, a very... He's a messed-up guy with all these neuroses and all this uh, stuff. And then in Big Little Lies, obviously, the whole, like, front of masculinity is sort of a facade for all of this brokenness and this hostility and this toxicity. Uh, And now in this one, you see... it. I guess it's hard to pin down what's going on under there, but all of these games really seem to be covering up something really messed up i mean with the blood thing it is undeniable that he is uh concealing fucked upness like the likes of which we have not seen in full yet
1: yes absolutely that was next level i mean like you know you hear things about these silicon valley types and and new media tech guys who are getting infused with like the blood of virgins and you know all sorts of wacky wellness things but just him sitting, dripping into an IV of of his own blood to give a, a spite to, IV to an underling. I mean,
2: like, I was well, there this precedent role, like, for that? <laughs> in terms of being like a Silicon Valley thing, a lot. I think, in the same way that the Roys are more, you know, interesting, verbose versions of business people, he is the sort of more interesting, verbose version of a Silicon Valley type, while at the same time embodying that, like, weird jittery socially awkward energy that you see from so many of these silicon valley types like has never bothered to learn how to be around people because like it is either more fun for him to not know or it's just never really presented serious problems for him to not know
1: right doesn't know how to speak or or deal with women at all in any way straight up like does
2: not believe in small talk yeah
1: yeah i mean yeah he he said weird things throughout the series, you know, like uh, when, when he's at the Lake Como house and he says he has like a hard time sleeping there, um, that it creeps him out or something. He, you know, he says things that he, you know, he gets obsessed with people and he gets fixated, that he has trouble with boundaries. Um, it's, it's definitely an archetype for sure.
2: The way he likes just provoking them, he has big-time edgelord sensibilities, where I think he likes getting a rise out of people. (laughs) He likes saying things and seeing how people react. He likes just sort of, like, pushing people's buttons in that same way that I think probably translates. He must be an incredible poster, his posts. I I think where Elon Musk is, like, the world's worst poster, I feel like he would probably do very interesting tweets, Madsen.
1: Well, I mean, they talk about his tweets and and trying to keep him at bay. And you know, they cause his, with, issues with his yeah, tweeting. Yeah, Brendan, you had you, you know I don't know if we want to get to that now. Yeah, we, yeah, did. we might as
0: we might as well we'll we'll steer yeah. this back onto the onto the business talking a bit. But yeah, while we're on Mattson, I mean, yeah, Musk is I think the big kind of archetype that we're thinking about for this character, right? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more like superficial similarities in like the bio and everything to this guy, Notch, this uh, Swedish game developer who created Minecraft. Um, he's not really a player in the industry anymore because he sold to Microsoft and, you know, is too controversial a figure to really be, um, institutionally party of part of any of these companies anymore. Um, uh, but he has a lot of things in, in common with Matson, and then with Musk too, you know, the impulsive tweeting, the drift towards, you know, reactionary politics, And, you know, the sense that his genius is really just like a veneer of respectability and cultural capital, you know, as the meme is going currently, you know, what if your whole personality was just based on low interest rates? That's kind of Madsen, right? Like beneath all of that is something really fucked up and creepy, you know? And if you take the skeptical view of someone like Musk's track record, as I think probably Armstrong and these other writers do, and we think about what Gojo is said to be, you know, a technology company, a platform more than anything else... His sort of his sort of status as this golden god within the business world it starts to seem a lot more potentially fragile.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, personality parallels with Musk. You know, Charles was talking about a little bit—just you know, socially awkward. There's this uh, reactionary streak, men's rights type of vibe, uh, the disturbing father history, which is also um, you know very very salient for Elon Musk. If you haven't read about that. Yeah, yeah, it might be interesting to learn more about what I—I I mean, I don't really understand. Like, I get what Gojo is, but but what did he do that was so business genius? Um, I don't know. There's like, what the fuck is Gojo?
2: how hard Um, can it possibly be to be successful in scandinavia i feel like it's like (laughs) you can invade them and it's no big deal it's they just roll right over
1: they're so soft yeah i mean like i don't know yeah i i mean there's no reason to believe he's this great luminary but within the world it seems like he it seems regarded that way
0: it seems like they have a great streaming platform and the reason they want to buy waystar is they want to get the content to back it up right they if if waystar is implied to be like a fox or warner's they have this great library of films and tv shows going back decades and decades yeah that that acquisition kind of makes sense but again yeah his his contribution basically you know he may have some like software tech you know he may have some some genius on like software or the tech side or whatever but clearly when it comes to yeah like interpersonal skills or whatever it's like he's suggested to be quite similar to the problems that have been teased out with waystar a lot of people there too like they're not dissimilar despite the sort of like veneer of like you know scandinavian you know, socialism or superficial progressivism right. clearly has very deep issues with women and you know like the way he talks about like france and everything and things like that is like it suggests yeah like, the the, the muslims running around to, to, yeah yeah the, the,
2: the most uh alarming one for me is when uh whenever a man compliments a woman on being able to take a joke that is just like the most spine chilling shit that you yes. can possibly hear <laughs> well especially after
1: <laughs> admitting to like institutional sexual misconduct yes <laughs>
2: You're, you're
3: cool so. you <laughs> can hang yeah yeah
1: and i mean sh- she can because she's used to that she does not care you know what you're all but right we'll, shiv yeah, i might we'll send you it.
0: some of my blood one day that's basically
1: <laughs> <Yeah. something. laughs> oh my god um all right so, so should we get should we get back to the deal
0: yeah yeah back yeah. to the deal you know yeah <laughs> businesses are fucking as, as ken said um <laughs> So so Robin and Kendall, they bring that 187 number to the C-suite. They, again, they had not been prepared to entertain this offer for the whole company, including ATN. So we're not sure if that's the number they'd be looking for for the whole company. Um, when they take the offer to Shiv, she's like, okay, yeah, sure, fine. Because she's happy to dump ATN because she's just learned the stuff that we mentioned about about the connection with Jared Menckens campaign. And she's
1: always wanted to dump ATN.
0: Always wanted to. Of course, there are some interesting implications for whatever her larger strategy is. We'll get to that a little bit later. right? Um, and so then there are a couple of more key scenes for the negotiation process. There's that outdoor scene where the two leadership teams are sort of sitting around, drinking beer, shooting the shit. Um, and when Kendall and Matson get into it there, he outlines more of his concerns about selling ATN. Um, he really goads, Matson does, the Roys in the scene. He insults them in Swedish. He
2: calls Kendall and Roman a tribute um, band. Um, I would point he, out, ahead, I, I couldn't hear much, but I did hear him say Habsburg, that he, making fun of the fact that it is a family company, I heard him say Habsburg at one point.
1: Yes, somebody translated it. Um, he said, he,
2: I think he's referring to Greg. He says
0: like a seven foot tall Habsburg freak or something like that.
1: Yeah, like <laughs> nine, nine, foot of, nine feet of nepotism um which is so funny because there's all this focus on physicality and then they manage to make fun of like the biggest guy there for the roys
0: <laughs> yeah of course it is it is it is genuinely funny when you're like oh this guy's this guy's their cousin that is that is kind of a funny thing uh but 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 kendall raises this concern that Matson doesn't understand what he's buying in atn and i think there's something to that like i think kendall's not wrong in raising these points like obviously you've talked about they've all have all this emotional investment and ken just kind of wants to blow this up because he has this addictive destructive drive going on but and the deal is proposed, the, the, the terms of the deal that Matson offers are 50-50 cash stock. So that means that whatever they get for their shares, only half of that is going to be straight liquid that they can you know withdraw from the bank. The other half is stock and whatever the merged Waystar-Gojo ends up being. So they have a real continued investment and ATN continuing to be a success, because if that stock plummets, right. if he somehow destroys the value of that company, then all of a sudden they're not getting what they thought they were getting. Um, you know, the big question of it is still why Matson himself wants ATN, aside from this macho drive, because he is a little bit cagey about it. Although in that scene, he starts yeah. talking a bit more about what he would do with it in terms of a business plan. He says that between he and his number two Oscar, they see a way back. He alludes to concerns about the aging demographics of their viewership, their target audience dying off. He says that he would make it more Bloomberg gray, simple, cheap, huge, ikea to fuck, which kind of echoed to me Logan's speech where he says something leaner, faster, wilder.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, and ATN is a bit of a toxic asset. You know, we can think of Fox News and everything. You know, ATN is sort of depicted in a similar way. And and who knows what uh, problems they'll brush up against, you know, with, with the election and with this information about the, you know, the line to make in and so forth. Um, but it's kind of funny circling back, you know, to the theme of, like, old world, new world that's just, you know, kind of been threaded since the pilot, really, and Ken and, and Logan and their different philosophies and so forth. And, it, and it's funny to hear Ken now say that, you know, Matson doesn't understand the business when he kind of does a, a an accurate read on it by calling it, you know, a parts shop, uh good parts, um but just not not cohesive and he calls the brand bad even though and then the boys are are very defensive the brand is not bad um it it seems like there's some something of a protective stripe emerging in the wake of logan's death when it comes to atn that that could prove to be very consequential uh
2: but just i was thinking you know aside from the alexander like compulsion to own as many things as possible i think like mattson has this very sinister energy about him that i think would lend itself to like wanting to suddenly own a piece of american media which is a very precious and difficult to happen into thing i think he imagines himself doing all manner of interesting mischievous things with that
1: yeah i think he sees potential for it i think he has the ego to think like hey maybe this this uh old person tv news branding is old but you know we're smart we're we're fit we're young we can figure it's literally just like
2: because yeah, there's an audience of the airwaves. the
1: audience is there right like the the asset might be kind of toxic but a shitload of people are watching it
0: well and it, it, it rather interestingly puts kendall in the position of making the arguments that logan was making to him all the way back in season one when he was trying to argue him out of the uh local news deal where logan was buying up packages right. of local stations around the country and they were saying like oh nobody watches news anymore etc cetera, etc cetera. um and, and logan was insisting on its viability as a business proposition and there is there is a lot to that argument you know I think it, it I mean it's sure it's true that you know ATN or of course we're just substituting Fox News whenever we hear ATN for all this stuff it is true that some of that audience is is dying off um, but you know it's also refreshing itself with younger viewers online from time to time like Tucker hit a big sort of like younger demographic it's not impossible for it to sort of revivify itself so so we'll see um, but, uh, um, God, yeah. I just, I
2: imagine the, uh, the Fox news, TikTok, which is just such a chilling concept, but like, they must be trying to get out in yeah. front of this.
0: Yep.
1: They
2: have to. I, yeah.
0: So anyway, the upshot of this conversation, which, which is very contentious, it doesn't go great. Um, uh, Matson ends it by saying, you know, I don't care what you think you're a tribute band, which Shiv is like, Oh, I mean, hold on. This is getting a little bit too hostile. But, at, at, but at night after that conversation, Kendall proposes to Roman privately that they tank the deal. Um, but because they have a fiduciary duty to entertain the offer, they have to try to trick Matson into walking away without letting Shiv know, without letting the C-suite, without letting the board catch on. Um, so their tactics are to, <laughs> as Matson says later, Scooby do it. Uh, which is a uh, language, which is a phrase that uh, that Roman used back in the season two premiere uh, when mm-hmm. he was referring basically to dirty tricks. You know, the use of like honeypots and private investigators and things like that to intimidate people, catch and kill that kind of thing. I was thinking,
2: um, um, in in that respect, the Arrested Development where they build the tiny town and keep the Japanese investors <laughs> a ways away. That is basically that Scooby doing it. That is a uh...
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the head of Barbera Business School. Uh, so uh, so the, the tricks they came up with you know, overnight are they arrange a screening of the troubled blockbuster uh, Calispatron hibernation, uh, which Waystar <laughs> Studios is about to enter reshoots on. They also leak a story to the press that the negotiations um, are breaking down. Um, so that's what, that's what they came up with uh, for their sort of subterfuge.
1: Quick canon corner on the Kalispatron franchise. We've we heard about that the first time in season two in the Dundee episode when um, Uncle Ewan says to Greg that there's a, a case to be made that Logan Roy is worse than Hitler, and uh, Greg responds, "Well, he did <laughs> he did create the Kalispatron franchise, so." Um,
0: Yes, and uh, and Greg has a uh, has a poster on the wall of He's his a fan. Uh, his very dingy ATN office. <laughs>
1: yes,
2: which which as we now understand is about a robot sleeping in a cave for a, a runtime of three hours, I believe. Which I kind of feel like I would watch that. That that sounds pretty good.
0: <laughs> My joke was that this the everything about Calyptron suggested to me the fake blockbusters in Olivier Assayas movies. Um, that's, what oh, that, absolutely. that's what that really reminded me of like yeah the one that chloe grace moretz is in in clouds of Sils maria that's what i kept thinking of
2: also falling in that category i saw just today the released uh for the i, I think i don't know fifth sixth transformers movie the upcoming transformers oh, the God, posters yeah. oh. of michelle Yeoh voicing a robot eagle <laughs> where i was like this is also a fake clouds of Sils maria movie that is like a whole genre unto itself
0: oh that's so great that's what an oscar gets you know you get to voice a decepticon yeah that leads us to this final uh mountaintop confrontation. Again, he's making them climb the mountain, take the take the long ass ski lift to get to the top of the mountain. Uh so this is set up by Roman and Kendall telling Shiv and the C suite this is what their stated intentions are. They say that they're looking for either $146 a share for Waystar minus ATN or for the whole package they need a quote unquote crazy premium over the the $187 a share. But they don't tell Matson this. So their plan is basically to just let the deal die a slow death while they tell the board that negotiations are stalled because they're not actually telling Matson that they're looking for a different or a higher offer. Um, but Matson sniffs them out, um, and Roman gives the game away by revealing that the board doesn't know what they're up to, which means that Mattson can just bypass them with the higher number to get the deal done, which he does by calling Frank with an offer of $192 a share for Waystar, including ATN. So in the eyes of the board, in the eyes of the C-Suite, Roman and Kendall have shown themselves to be worthy of Logan. They've gotten in a room, well, outside, but they've gotten in a room one-on-one with Matson, and they've landed the deal, uh, kind of like Logan did sitting down with Nan Pierce and Turnhaven. Uh, but only the two of them know that they actually failed in their own objective, which is very ironic and private defeat. And again, Matson wins, as characters tend to do on the show, by just saying the biggest number. Which is another echo of the idea that goes all the way back to the pilot of this show the notion of the bear hug the literal offer you can't refuse uh if we recall kendall's acquisition of Walter in the pilot when he said he was going to stuff uh lawrence's mouth with gold that so many of succession's business deals kind of boil down to this um it's an expression of that idea thematically you know there's the The bear hug as a metaphor is very rich. It's what Logan does to Kendall at the end of season one, that embrace. It's the familiar, familial gesture that also crushes you. Um, But it's also the philosophical perspective that I think these writers have on the business world because it privileges inertia and it privileges these existing institutions because not not just anybody can say the big number. You have to have access to the big money. You have to have the money already or you have to be able to, to bring the financing together in order to win that way. And thinking about inertia, as I think, is a one of several good frames for thinking about the final arc of the show, as these kids are trying to honor what they think Logan would have done, without necessarily knowing why.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of inertia, after constantly talking about circularity, it, it makes sense for where the show is headed. And uh, yeah, there's there's this you know been this dangling thread that's been planted from early on about what a new next generation Waystar could look like. Um, you know, it, it's always been hard for the kids to make something of that vision. Uh, Kendall is the one who who, you know, endeavors the most. And I think, you know, they might be sort of finally internalizing here that, that you know, it's not really a tenable vision. It's it's interesting to think that uh, you know, they're selling to Gojo, this sort of uh, new world tech behemoth, but 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 nothing's changing. It's just huge sums of money moving from one company to another, one conglomerate to another and uh what it amounts to for you is just you know some changes in your streaming service Uh, like i said you know like who the fuck cares about gojo you know i was so like they had like the merch like the gojo go you know they think that these people think they're so important and that these decisions are, are are life and death but um it's all the same kind of hollow king making and institutional stagnation i think uh you know it's a it's a sad place for the show to have to go but but you know it has to go there
2: i think uh this is how we see that they're motivated almost totally at this point by sentimentality because not so long ago they were ready to do what would have has long been the rational thing and start a new company and like divorce (laughs) themselves from all this yes exactly where but they are just so hung up on the idea of royco and waystar and owning that which yeah. their dad used now, to now now that
1: logan's dead forget it i mean they're just they're running on pure uh, emotion reactivity grief um I, I don't think there's any hope for the hundred or a new vision or anything changing um yeah. this is just entrenched institutional um you know like brendan said you just you, ha- you have to be big to play
2: I think it's like you see this. I, I feel like this is in, you know, quote unquote, business fiction, a trope where people get hung up on getting the promotion at their job instead of getting, you know, finding new success by moving laterally to a new business. Like they get so obsessed with a particular brass ring that it becomes the only acceptable version of success and, and going somewhere else, even if it means moving up in general, would be a concession of defeat.
0: Yeah, I th- <laughs> that reminds me of that arc in the last season of Mad Men where Ken Cosgrove is like still at the company that he literally lost an eye to and that's making his life a living hell. And uh, when his wife is like screaming at him, like, why won't you quit your job? He's like, well, I'd like to stick around and see if I get that raise. Like That's the thing he comes up with.
2: Um, yeah, yeah.
1: They they all kind of get stuck. Like Even Frank, like when he returns um, in the hunting episode to be pre-briefed on, on Pierce stuff back in season two, Jerry's like, you know why, why did you come back and he's like you know baby needs a new pair of shoes moth to the flame there's something about this world and i think this family in particular and logan and the way that um you know logan really uh, he was a scary force but he also was somebody that commanded uh, uh, you know i don't know if i want to use the word respect but um a lot of attention a lot of energy um uh, especially for the kids, but but for all the people around him. And, I mean, his specter is looming here, and, and nobody wants to fuck this up.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about, talking about Kendall you know, becoming, the idea of Kendall becoming Logan, again, just to touch on that point of him reiterating arguments that he was fighting with Logan about all the way back in season exactly. one. It's not <laughs> just that he's like, you know, morally he's corrupted. But that you know his grand visions, his megalomaniacal perhaps vision of the world that he laid out in season three, when he really felt like he was free from all his issues, and he you know had a, a a perhaps deluded scheme about how to like fix the world and actually like try to put things on a different better course. He's he's somehow you know perhaps without even realizing it to himself, he's just found himself you know rearticulating Logan's vision. Um, and you know whatever you say about Logan, as destructive and awful as his vision of the world was, you know it also kind of felt like it was his. Um, wasn't something that he just borrowed from somebody else. Um, yes,
3: I I also like so. what you
0: said, Gabby, about uh, about how hollow uh the deal ends up being. It recalls what to me was one of the best lines in this episode when Ken is on the plane telling Shiv like we're death wrestling with ogres, and he goes, "You're she goes, you're you're reading documents, <laughs> you're Ken." <me. laughs>
1: it's funny because that's a very like Shakespearean success, succession type of line. The you know we're, we're very Logan esque. Um, you know to 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 sort of like turn it into this uh just to
2: puncture people's ego like
1: right medieval fight and then and then shiv is kind of like you have a fucking email job you know shut up (laughs) beautiful and it was it was cute the the three of them on the plane you could see that they they need each other right now really badly
0: cherish those moments of the siblings even just like barely getting along cherish those moments
1: yeah the boys offering to knife tom for shiv and she laughs she smiles she's so happy i mean it's hard it's so dysfunctional but uh you know, I, I see them as such just lost little kids. They seemed so so young in this episode,
0: yeah. I mean, obviously, the big emotional through line through a lot of this season has been Roman. And this is another big episode for him because it really turns on, again, he kind of screws things up with his outburst and that meeting with Matson. But it is this thing where he, you know, decisively, you know, he turns against the deal. And he allies himself with Kendall and saying, like, we're going to fight tooth and nail to hang on to this company and hang on to this piece of it. Specifically, you know, this front he'd been putting up, this facade of, oh, I've pre-grieved. We knew that that had to crack eventually. Here, the other bit of business is that it's triggered by a photo that Connor sends him of Logan's corpse. Uh, Connor, you know, sort of handling funeral duties with Willa back home. We only see that. Why did he
1: do that? (laughs)
0: yeah Just
1: socially inept Connor like... I'm sure
0: well I'm sure I'm sure Connor's kind of like panicking and freaking out about all this stuff too he's not having a great time with the death either he doesn't seem like he's in a great state when he's you know back at uh at the funeral home, with with Willis sorting through all this,
2: the, the touch of him sending that photo, it very much like says to me, it is incompetent assistant behavior. Where like they're all business people, and he is so very not. And he is like the assistant who has to send a picture of every last thing to confirm that it has been done correctly. <laughs> and, you know, all, all the person wants is to not be bothered by this.
0: Oh yeah, because that's what they say to him on the skillet Eventually, is like, don't text us, don't email us, just take care of yeah, it. We don't want to know about Ro- it. They, they totally said, treat him like a funky, don't send yeah.
1: photos, don't send
0: photos. Which is an emotional reason. <laughs> For that but yes you're you're very right that it is kind of how they treat their flunkies at the company and roman has been yeah. throwing himself into the deal he's been throwing himself into work out of the obligation he feels to logan's memory but he also obviously wants to distract himself and that pressure he's feeling and this inability to separate his grieving process from these business obligations that he has it boils over at Matson, who obviously is just continues to bully and prod and poke at them throughout the episode we're also reminded, I think, in this episode, for, for those who have been paying attention, that Matson was, in his way, the impetus for that final impasse between Roman and his father at the end of season three, which wasn't just the deal, but, you know, it was talking about the deal. It was in that meeting that he made the dick pic, you know, air, uh with Jerry and sending it to Logan, uh, which, you know, triggered sort of Logan giving up on Roman, right? He Matson kind of set in, indirectly sets all that in motion. And in that scene where the three of them, matson Logan, and Roman, are at, you know, Lake Como, and all the bells say, you know, Matson, we said, he looks a bit like the younger body that Logan might be wanting for himself or the replacement child he might be looking for. And I think that Roman's, you know, sudden hatred and hostility for him has obviously been building for some time. Yeah. And it's a displacement of those messy, unresolved feelings he has about his father's death. But it's also perfectly legible if you look back at his relationship with Matson so far
2: i also think a lot of like the the heat in the contempt that roman has for Matson <clears throat> is sort of a narcissism of small differences type situation where on paper they are extremely similar characters they are both sex freaks they are both you know uh, they have this sort of provocateur behavior they are smug and they like you know just giving people shit And I think when someone like that meets someone else who is like that, especially someone who is kind of a superior specimen physically, and takes away that one thing that they kind of have to feel superior about someone else for, uh, where they're, you know, just as good of a bullshitter, but also, you know, the jock and the big kid on the team, like that is a very powerful uh, reaction that you get from that.
0: That's a great insight. That reminds me a lot of how the show is using Tom and Greg this season where Greg, who has gained a lot of status at the company, is no longer just Tom's flunky, you know, and we've talked about the very nasty edge to a lot of Greg's dialogue. He feels a lot more comfortable throwing this back at Tom, and Tom seems a lot more grossed out by him in turn. And a lot of it is because, you know, Greg is now reflecting a bit of Tom back at himself, and he's triggering a lot of Tom's own self-loathing. Yeah, and I, and I, just, I just wanted to make the point qu- quickly too, that, you know, in in some of the discussion that I saw uh, online in various corners of this episode, you know, there was the characterization of, you know, oh, how could we have expected Kendall and Roman to ever get this deal? You know, they're so stupid. They're just fail kids. They were always going to screw this up. Um, But the show does kind of like differentiate them, uh, Roman and Kendall, in, in obvious ways where like we see Roman is still kind of doing the homework as he has been since he started cleaning up his act in season two at the beginning of the episode where he's meeting with staffers uh, while Kendall is you know, sending a barrage of emails and he's more impulsive. But I also think that, you know, it's important to keep in mind, although the kids are incompetent in certain ways, the show also has its cynical attitude towards this whole sphere of business where it's not like being, you know, really smart and doing your homework really gets you anywhere in the long run when it's you know it's the guy with the biggest money the guy with the biggest dick just tends to win right you know they may be stupid fail kids but they're navigating a world that is stupid and cruel and being blunt and simplistic often wins the day
1: yeah which is what logan knew so well and constantly emphasized that i know people if i didn't know people i wouldn't turn a buck um and a lot of this is just about you know quote unquote how you were in the room they loved you in the room bravado saying numbers you know i I don't think succession wants us to have much regard for this process um not to overthink it seems like roman might be the the sibling who's sort of the most realistic about all this sort of being bullshit you know all season really he's uh kind of been bringing up the fact that they're deal making and you know they could be just getting out they could be uh riding snowmobiles he's the only one to bring up the fact that they're there in, in Norway just a couple of days after their dad died i think um you know it, it's it's starting to 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 affect them in different ways they're internalizing certain lessons um but yeah what's always most important to focus on is what's driving everyone's thoughts and and, and decisions and there's a lot of you know barely submerged grief and emotion but yeah let's let's talk a little bit about the you know the Scandies and the whole just like idea of of uh, being in norway and and these two groups yeah, together,
0: yeah, I mean, having picked having worked through, I think hopefully by now, people who are listening to this, hopefully people feel like if they didn't before have a better grasp of what all the the business dynamics were. But there's a lot more fun stuff to unpack in this episode. I was thinking in particular of a, of another episode of the show because we talk a lot about circularity regarding succession but it's one thing for the show to develop that as a theme and another to just remake previous episodes we talk about that a lot on this podcast but this perhaps more than any other episode really seems to be like a straight up remake of a previous episode in particular Turnhaven uh, from season two which is another installment about the idea of a culture clash and the Waystar crew as fish out of water although you know in that episode it was them sort of courting the pierces trying to trying to get them to agree to a deal And here they're ostensibly the ones that are being courted, although they're still somehow in a defensive position because they're the ones asking for more money. And there is a big blow up at the end where someone kind of loses their cool, although here it's Roman trying to tank the deal and doesn't get the result that they wanted. But a lot of the fun sort of thematic stuff that is in this production that is in the direction uh, has to do with that concept of uh, clashing cultures, basically.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. There was, you know, there was an immediate kind of like hostility and and sense of peacocking between the two companies and cultures. Um, I I liked on the plane early on the the C-suite is kind of reading up on uh, the Gojo people. And I think uh, Carolina describes them as a NASDAQ master race. And she talks about all their, you know, Fulbright uh, scholarships and just generally being very impressive young people. And you kind of have this uh, you know group of i don't know how old carolina is but the rest of them yeah i would say you know 50 plus kind of um old school type of of you know corporate um it's corporate group and 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 uh, next to these sort of like uh new money tech kind of young scandinavian olympian um you know freak race it, i don't know it almost makes the pierces look look pleasant um but it's always fun to put the roys next to other types of you know uber rich freaks and see you know how it stresses them out and and how they react so
2: uh, i so much love you know on the plane on the way there that jerry tries to reassure them by pointing out that they're european and by that simple well right. <laughs> alone we will fucking crush them as americans <laughs> um but i do think that this uh episode much like turn haven goes to this really really fertile uh well in tv writing which is the idea of like cast doppelgangers like you bring in a bunch of people who are the anti one character or another character and this episode uh is a lot of fun in that it makes that explicit you have someone who has your job and so everyone is very clear about who their counterpart was whereas in turnhaven that's sort of a thing that people feel out de facto thing but in this one we see tom is confronted by the scandinavian tom who was very unimpressed by him tom of siobhan he calls him (laughs) Uh, We see that, you know, the Carolina and Eva is another important set of foils that we meet this hour. And uh, that's really great in terms of comedy, just because we see that so much of what is integral to the characters that we know is their Americanness, And when that is removed, they're such drastically different people.
0: We can talk a little bit about the direction of this episode, too. We have uh, Andre Park back for the show. He tends to get a lot of the the juiciest hours I would say <laughs> he directed his first episode he directed was season one episode six which side are you on the uh the the failed coup uh, he directed hunting the boar on the floor episode he directed what it takes the political episode last season um and he's pretty close I think to Mark Mylod's house style for this show he's very fond of those snap zooms if you watch the episode you'll see you see a lot of those um but he doesn't he doesn't really uh break the mold that, that Mylod has set up in in many ways um, and I think I heard that there was there was an unusual amount amount of footage left on the cutting room floor in this episode. They had a lot of fun with the Norway sure, locations. Yeah. Did you have a Did you have a favorite location from this episode, Charles? There's a lot of good ones here. That
2: uh, the best one is <clears throat> the very stretched out shot, reverse shot between Ken and his room and Roman and his room, oh, are both like we see <laughs> that they're in this like hyper modern treehouse type situation where these are like small, tasteful, economic rooms, which offends them to their very core, obviously. Yeah, it's such uh, a right. it's such a nice hotel. <laughs> You're small. I think I think cuz I think this was the
0: one that was said to be the location they used for the Oscar Isaac tech billionaire um sort of hideout oh, right. in uh, in the movie <clears throat> Ex Machina. But it's actually yeah. like it's a, it's like a relatively affordable hotel. I was looking it up. It's not like a luxury hotel. It's just really pretty. Um. So, but but yeah, they're they're pissed off that the rooms are small.
2: It seems like a like the kind of thing that was made for travel Instagram accounts, where it was just like affordable yes. places you can go to like get incredible selfies. Uh, right, like right, right, right. Yeah, right.
1: yeah they, we had the sauna shots. There was there were some really pretty shots. Um,
2: like peeking yeah. ducks in the window. <laughs>
1: So funny. Uh, yeah, there was some footage from that scene that that we missed out on too. But uh, there was a lot of locations here. It seemed like it was all one place. But uh, Kieran Culkin said that he checked out of eight hotels in eleven days on this shoot, so um, not a whole lot of time to really you know even enjoy or notice the scenery. He said that he didn't even barely register the the magnificence of where he was when in that final mountaintop scene, which which probably helped the acting a little bit.
2: You had mentioned before, you know, this is uh, an example of one of the off campus episodes, which I always Mm -hmm. think of as uh, my favorite episodes are where they go a place to do a thing, which is uh, very much the situation of this because we get a taste of and one of my favorite aspects of Succession is this uh this peek into the overworld that we see like literally just the logistics of transportation getting from one location with all your stuff to another in the most frictionless way possible i find fascinating how there is just the best food you've ever seen sitting around everywhere not being eaten
1: never touched (laughs) absolutely
2: yeah yeah, like in their negotiation (laughs) chamber there's like a banquet spread that uh what he sticks his thumb in the caviar right uh just as he walks by uh, yeah, and I love these tastes of you know this is a sphere obviously far outside my own, and I was like, so this is what being super rich is like. Yeah, the uh, the, yeah, the the, e- the, the ease pigs. of travel,
1: the roasted pigs, the that, suckling that, pigs, that, yeah, that had hunting vibes. Yeah, the ease of travel is is basically like the one thing that I get really jealous about watching on the show. Um, we've talked about how the wealth is not always depicted as aspirational, and like, yeah, sure, it would be nice to be really wealthy, but the whole point of the show is that. <laughs> it's a trap, but, but when I see them just like having their bags carried and, and it's so seamless just to go from, from this cart to this plane and, and it's it's a lot and it's you know, but it's uh just just the way that they, they don't ever have to take into consideration picking up their bag is uh yeah. This
2: is yeah, the, it's is it really I think a, me. <laughs> a big conspicuous consumption thing is having this luxury of resources in these extremely remote locations where everything is being flown in, everything is at your disposal. And we see that, you know, the the landing point is always so far away from where they're going, whether it's, you know, the hunting cottage or to turn haven, you're always uh you're, you're being in nature but still basically having all of the luxuries of a mansion is is something that uh, is really important to people who enjoy The appearance of I think being in nature more than the reality of being
0: well and they bring the whole office with them because like a huge theme of this episode is like the traveling retinue and like how many extra people are just always around in every scene like Matson obviously in plot terms like Matson sends this email at the beginning where he like requests like this huge list of people to come out so they can kind of sniff them out. But it's always established in these episodes anyway that, like, when the top players are flying anywhere, they have a whole plane full of flunkies behind them that they just, like, don't see. They're, like, back there, like, typing, you know, Ratfucker Sam and everybody else are, like, hard at work in the background. And, like, in that opening scene where Hugo greets Ken at Waystar, he's, like, brought three additional staffers we've never seen before to Ken. He just says they're additional manpower. Like, there's just, like, always extra people. Just, like, there's always extra food. There's, like, extra people around, extra employees you don't Mm -hmm. need. And there's that, that the, one of the big tensions in this episode is like, yeah, that theme of like American excess versus this Scandinavian ethic of perhaps like conspicuous
2: frugality. I know that there's like a, there's thick of it all over this, but that is a bit specifically from In the Loop that you want meat in the room to seem more impressive. A <laughs> meeting is not good unless yeah. it has minimum 35 people.
0: Yeah, I thought of I thought of In the Loop in this episode when uh, uh, Shiv is sniffing out how like cool and like detached Kendall seems on, 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 the, on the road to the meeting, she says, ooh, Iceman, which reminded me of the the Iraqi informant in the, in the loop is said to be called Iceman.
2: <laughs> to Mr. and Mrs. Man, a son, ice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah, exactly that one. Yeah, and as you're talking about the food, I mean, like a big theme on succession is always conspicuous consumption. And there's that great scene where they arrive at a breakfast buffet, not realizing somehow that it's a trap because the americans get there first they're like ooh they start loading up their plates and then all of a sudden the scandies get in there who are all like younger <laughs> fitter looking in better shape and you know they've got and these sort of like slightly pudgy or like less good looking americans are like oh we're just standing around with a plates full of like danishes and like ray what offloads is... his danishes onto hugo's plate <laughs> so that he doesn't have a, a a handful of food while he's like going around trying to shake hands and like meet and greet and, and stuff.
1: then he gets hugo gets made fun of Save some for us. But it's it's also awkward the interactions and like it was the first time I actually felt bad for Hugo when he responded to some of those things. My God,
2: poor Hugo who just was looked
1: at him, yeah, up
2: against just... an, an Olympian at that. Uh, right, that's ooh. his
1: counterpart. The deputy of comms was was the Olympian, and then he makes that comment about the oh, those darn tenths of a second, which is such a, like a kind of like an American boomer dad joke, and, and the guy does not take it so well.
0: Well, because <laughs> it's implied that Ebba, who's their head of comms, played by Eileen Harbo. Uh, who is sort of Carolina's opposite number that she's an Olympian, but then her number two is also an Olympian. So instead of like the Carolina Hugo dynamic, where you have like a very beautiful, glamorous head of PR and then the VP Hugo, who is like, you know, somewhat less good looking, somewhat less polished. They just have two Olympians. They have two like equally handsome, impressive people. Yeah. (laughs)
1: What did you guys make of the little quick, awkward encounter between Ebba and Carolina? I like that she whipped out the uh, the Norwegian or the S- Swedish. I- I'm assuming it was Swedish. I don't know for sure. Um, yeah, she made the comment, like, you look refreshed and Ebba like, kind of smiled. But then she sort of looked, uh, you know, like a little bit uh, daunted by it and kind of intimidated and walked away. What did you think that was about?
0: Is that like, kind of like a bitchy thing? like you Like you cleaned up nice or something like that?
1: Yeah, maybe it's sort of a, a, a the whole soft European thing. Like you know, they called it vacation vacation mania, right? Because they're always on fucking vacation. Those Europeans and they got the healthcare and stuff. So you look you look great. You're so refreshed. Yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. You're obviously not working that hard.
0: Jerry Jerry going <laughs> to Facebook rant about how they're all they're all soft because they have welfare. She's
2: she's uh I think basically just negging her, uh right. trying to get, get She on does a
1: life. great job, yeah. I think also maybe Ebba is just struggling with <laughs> uh
2: that actress uh... Is, is terrific. Uh ellie Harbo <laughs> was, great, yeah. was in uh Telma, uh Joachim Trier's movie in twenty seventeen, where yes. she plays oh. a uh psychokinetic teen lesbian. Uh and while there is not too much in common between that role and this one, we do see the same sort of quavering intensity that if she, you know, winds up being more of a thing and there is a scene where the chickens come home to roost on everything that's happened with her and Mattson. I see that quality also being very key to that.
1: And she she also seems to be the only senior woman there. And uh, Mattson calls her an estrogen air fresher to keep us smelling clean in Oof. front of Shiv. Um, again, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the, you know, the the misogyny of the episode and, and the sexual misconduct. Uh, always super fun and always relevant on Succession.
0: The Tom interaction and in that and that scene where they're outside having beers yeah. and uh you know Tom just like sits down at the at the top table with Matson and Oscar and his team. It's like oh just, no let, I'm, just gonna, ever. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let me just sit I'm just gonna sit in here and uh you know, trying to gel. Obviously, again, Tom like totally like without a paddle he just brings like,
1: up that anecdote, oh my god. Yes, yeah, so he Mattson has so like, Oh, if you
0: remember like we, we shared a joke when we were at Sun Valley together, which Matson just completely no sells. He he doesn't he gives him nothing there. And oh, well. then he like then he then he teases him by saying like, oh, what do you think is going to happen with France? Like, is France going to make it? The, the exact
2: phrasing, which I love so much is, is France going to make it? Yeah, we're <laughs> is always France like, what? It? A... <laughs> and then he's like,
1: well, what do you mean? He's like, France, like, you know, obviously, like, sclerotic state, you know, angry Muslims. Uh, aging population. Like, what do you think? And, and you know, it was obnoxious and it was meant to bully. But I, I thought Tom actually kind of handled it pretty well. Like his response, you know, it, it was uh, it was fine. You now he says U.S. is late imperial. So we don't really want to know. And uh, we have our own Paris. And when it burns, we'll rebuild it, which I thought, you know, in the moment, like, okay. He doesn't like platform himself
0: necessarily, but I mean, I think the point there is that Matson is like, "Oh, you're the head of global news. What do you know about like the globe? What do you actually know about?" (laughs) And Tom, like, he has a comeback, but he doesn't exactly like cut against that. He pretty much confirms
2: what they already think of him,
0: which is that he's an incurious American.
1: He doesn't know. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, he's he's presenting an educated, dignified way of saying basically, "Who gives a shit? We don't have
1: exactly. We don't care." Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but like oughtn't you to know if you're the head of global news, quote unquote?
0: And then yeah, there was that bit about yes. where I think I think it's Oscar who calls him Tom of Siobhan, which is like I think kind of right. like a Scandinavian joke where like often their names are like very like patronymic, so you have like the father's name, like you know, uh, it's Johansson also or the same like structure
1: that. as what they do in The Handmaid's Tale with the with the handmaids.
0: Yes, yeah, implying that again, <laughs> of course, his wife is the master of the house, the man of the house. But yeah, we should we should talk about about Shiv a bit. We'd already touched on you know the threads of misogyny that are laced through this episode. It's something that Succession does a lot when it wants to highlight you know how the sort of structures of power in this world often run off of the same dynamics, even in different spheres. Uh, there is you know, obviously uh, Eba's very conspicuously the only senior woman at this company, but uh, Matson reveals a side of himself to Shiv that he doesn't reveal to the others when, you know, because he's not trying to to bully her, to alpha her like uh like he is the boys. Um, and Shiv, mm-hmm. for her part, you know, in this episode, is in kind of an interesting spot where it's not exactly clear what she's maneuvering for. Part of me thought initially that she kind of accepted her fate as a secondary power player here. And she's trying to shore up other sources of power because, you know, early on in the plane, it's clear that she's sniffed out Ken's play to uh, burn Logan's reputation in the press, and she's disengaging herself from the deal-making, uh, you know, talking about ATN, um, prodding Ken in the car on the way to the hotel. So, I mean, I, part of me was just wondering, you know, because she has a couple of one-on-one conversations with Matson first, you know, in a group setting, and then later privately in his hotel room, you know, just what exactly is Shiv going after is it as simple as she's just kind of keeping her options open she's just trying to get close to madsen because he's going to continue to be important and because she needs allies wherever she can find them or does she have like a specific goal in mind does she want to stay on and like maybe kill atn from the inside uh, this is just an open question because i don't know
2: I think um the scene with Matson and Shiv, first I, I'm I'm reluctant to say that he's showing too much of himself because I think it's a very calculated kind of candor, is that he does seem like less guarded with her, but I believe that's because he comes into this knowing exactly how to play each of the siblings and knowing that Shiv for as much like of her, her self-possession, she is so susceptible to the approval of a man. And that when he signals her out as like, you're the one I respect, you're the one who like I take seriously, you're the one who I want to work with in this, she laps that up. Uh, and it is so much uh, pushing the same button as her father's approval did. That when she gets even just like a whiff of this, she is so willing to cast her lot with someone who is using her in, I think, the clearest way. Uh, I think that he sees her as a way to undermine Kendall and Roman, to further make them crazy, to sort of uh, eat this like a termite from the inside out and that Shiv sees, I think, short-term advantage in this, but she is being, like, uh, I I think, typically uh, short-sighted, self-serving in a way that will not serve her in the long run, just that it feels like she got played in this one, I guess.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I, I kind of see it differently. I mean, I I don't think it's it's clear-cut exactly um, what was going on in this dynamic for either of them, what their specific motivations were. I'm sure it's all a little muddled, but... You know, I-, I noticed that there was definitely an immediate sexual tension between the two of them from their first interaction. It's not like super heightened that you're distracted by it, but um, you know, Shiv is both enjoying it and using it to her advantage as she, you know, she has before, telling Tom that you know he's very conventionally attractive. Um, but she also calls him boring, so you know, showing that she's still, you know, she's not going to be um, super charmed necessarily by him. I I thought Matson kind of. Where, where he looked sort of like an alpha next to Ken and Roman, he looked very childlike and socially awkward next to her. And I think uh, it was a combination of him being, uh, you know, a bit attracted and, and enchanted by her, and also just the fact that he's a huge psychosexual nightmare himself, who really, I can imagine, has no understanding of women. Um, and, and I saw Shiv as kind of having the upper hand here because she has so much understanding, such a deep, complex understanding of these kind of flawed men um and how they can be handled and um i think Matson was really inebriated here his guard was down and I, I i'm not really convinced that he was trying to toy with her by saying she's like her dad i think he was actually pretty disarmed by her and and her reaction to the to the confession about the blood um i i don't think he expected her to react like that you know that's when he mentions you know how cool she is right we were talking about at the beginning like uh you know, you just mentioned something absolutely horrifying, and uh, you know Shiv can hang because you know she she can hang with the boys. That's what she does. So, you know, I think she she does what she thinks is the smart thing and becomes the sibling that Madsen likes. And you know, it it's part luck and the nature of, of attraction, but I think it's also you know part of the acumen that she's been forced to develop in dealing with strange men. It's a little bit dark, of course, because you know this little dance between them happens after Mattson admits what he's been doing and Shiv. Suggests damage control, but you know she's also pocketing some important information here that Matson has. You know, girlfriend, mommy issues, and it could be something down the line for her. Um, you know, to 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 manipulate and and you know, for for me, I think this was Shiv just knowing this world of perverted men, how rife sexual harassment is in these institutions, all the misogyny that she's had to internalize to get ahead and stay afloat. Um, and even though this is probably among, you know, the stranger types of pervert she's been confronted with, I, I think she saw it as a great time for some, you know, girl boss feminism for herself and the ladies. And, uh, you know, it's a little sad that this is the only way Shiv can really get a win. But, you know, it's not like anybody is getting uh, wins in a particularly dignified way in this world.
2: I think uh, one really crucial note in that scene is uh, right near the top where Matson offers her cocaine and she accepts it, and she does the classic like kid at the party thing where you don't want to yeah. make an example of yourself. But she takes it, and she unscrews it, and then she does not do a bump, and then she rescrews it. Which I think says to me that she wants to be seen as someone who can hang. She wants to be yeah. seen by Absolutely. him at school, and she wants his approval. Uh, that, yes, that is, she definitely yeah.
1: does. She yeah. definitely does, yeah. Um, and, and she likes it. She, she's, she's enjoying it. I mean, she's having a hard time. She... She basically admits in this episode some, <laughs> to some more emotion. She says she has a broken heart and a 24-hour migraine. She's, go, she's pregnant and nobody knows. Uh, she's
2: she's going, going through it.
1: She's going through it and she's getting some attention from, you know, a hot broad Scandi. And, you know, she's going to go for it. You know, that's, that's shit. That's what she does.
0: You both are making good points. I think it's difficult to read it as, as, of course, either one or the other. They're both kind of manipulating each other. They both kind of have things they want from the other I think what's interesting is that they both reveal things that were given to understand as the audience are actually true and revealing about themselves. Like Shiv says something there about Tom where she says, you know, I broke his heart, he broke mine, which is about as explicit as we've heard her be about actually hurting Tom, which is an interesting thing for her to reveal to the stranger. Maybe it's the only person she would feel comfortable talking about it to. And then I think that the whole blood brick confession from Matson really complicates how you view that scene, because yes, you can read it as he's trying to manipulate her and he is trying to daddy her as he's daddying the boys in a way. I think that's a perfectly valid reading, but he also gives up what we're given to understand as a true detail and a very disturbing one that also leaves him vulnerable in a way. And I also, and I think that Shiv does sniff that out as Gabby is saying as perhaps he also has a need to kind of be mommied. He has he has kind of a need, you know, for, for women to validate him and for their approval yes, on exactly. some level too. So the dynamic <laughs> is is cutting both ways a little bit. And they are both getting kind of things that they want. Because Shiv, I think, does want the deal to go through. Um, or at least she's playing some longer game there because she's I think she I think she uh, suspects what her brothers are up to full well, and she gives in that detail of as he kind of mocks her for, like, oh, if I just keep you know, offering more money, eventually I'll get it. Uh, but, you know, right. she but she lets him know that the deal is there, that that, that her brothers are not the end-all be-all. Um, and he, in turn, you know, seems to kind of, like, bring her a little bit into his confidence. To what end? We'll see. He could cut her out in the future. But again, he's given something up that does make him a bit vulnerable. So so we'll see about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, she plays it well by, by saying, you know, oh, um, you know, Jerry could help you with this, and I could advise you, and three-point plan, you know, she puts on her her advisor hat. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of funny memes going around. I don't know. <laughs> I, I can never tell how serious they are. Um, that Shiv, you know, did a big feminism move by by saving, you know, Jerry and Carolina from the kill list. Um, you know, contrast to what's been going on in the first few episodes or, you know, they're knocking out all the women one by one. But again, you know, <laughs> Was this feminism? I mean, only in the very, very limited way that Shiv can be feminist within the Waystar institution, right? She spotlights Jerry and Carolina. It's not necessarily to save them, because it's 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 good optics in sense. They're very good at their jobs, which has included unfortunately covering up crimes against vulnerable women and yeah, laborers. Big, big asterisk um, there. Big asterisk, Matson could clearly use that help. It's funny how she says, "I don't know who's been advising you on that." When uh, he brings up the blood bricks, like she's so um, cerebral about it. Um, you know, if, if anything, she's off-dutying, you know, offloading to use her own words from season two, "lady duty shit work" onto Jeralina. Jeralina, I'm using the fucking <laughs> thing that the, For, the Freudian use. slip, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, because um. None of the the men could handle Matson's freak issues, as we know, and, and the only way he was able to let his guard down was, um, you know, in an intimate kind of setting with 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 Shiv. So, a uh, little bit of a win, but I mean, obviously, uh, obviously,
0: fem- the <laughs> idea of feminism is a complete joke in this context. Like, it's it's not worth it's right. not worth thinking seriously, um, at all. I do like that she suggests as one of the tactics as to how to handle the Eppa situation. She uses the phrase. Catch and kill, which is literally the name of the Ronan Farrow book about like Harvey Weinstein. Um, it's oh, also, it? it's all, I mean, it's also a phrase that has specific meaning where like you use tabloids and book publications to like you know get an agreement to publish a story, and then you kill the story quietly so that you so that guarantee that it won't be published. That kind of thing it's a tactic that these big companies use um that you know Mm. the powerful men use when they're trying to suppress a damaging story like this um but yeah it's very interesting that they use that specific phrase there right i think that's that perhaps should undercut uh, the idea of epic girl boss feminism here um, which hopefully hopefully nobody's actually taking seriously
1: but, you know, within the world, nice to see Shiv get, you know a little w for herself and and, and a little bit a little bit of confidence back. Well, yeah, because at um, the at
0: the end of the episode, we learned that the people who have survived the kill list that gets leaked through Jess are Jerry and Carolina. Um suggesting that perhaps, you know, Shiv in some way has advocated for them in that scene. Maybe that's maybe that's off screen. Or maybe again, Matson's mommy issues, him thinking that he needs to, you know, keep the, the powerful women on board at the company in case he has to deal with a scandal like this. He doesn't want to be seen pushing these women out. Um and that also Tom has survived uh the kill list. He lives yes. he lives to fight another day.
1: <laughs> Carl, not happy about that. <laughs> Now, I just wanted to say really quickly, because there was so much chatter about, um, you know, the substance use in this episode, and Charles brought it up briefly. Um, you know, I-, I think Succession is pretty, like, deliberate when they want to show you that someone is using a substance, right? Like, season one, Kendall smoking a meth, uh, smoking a-, a pipe of meth, and it's like, it's right in front of you. Greg is railing a bunch of lines in the the Prague episode. You know, like, it- they depict it clearly, and and... The show does have a lot of this sort of like um passing around and offering of substances that were never certain get consumed. um you know we see it with Roman a lot um and I think that they've just adapted to a world where you know these substances are so available freely when when they you know don't want to partake it's it's easier to kind of just pretend that that you are rather than answering questions about it, especially as a woman. there's lots of in- instances when you're in college and you know you have to take a you know you they literally made us take a class in college, you know, just about, like, how to protect yourself from rape and how to, you know, pretend to take shots if you're offered. The director confirmed that she's indeed just pretending in the episode. But, yeah, it's, al- it's also clear that she hasn't exactly come to terms with her pregnancy yet. You know, it hasn't even been brought up since beginning of episode four, and there's no indication she's even thinking about it. Two hours since the news and... No mention of it. Not even like a silly little allusion to her puking in the bathroom or something. Like they're they're really you know it's gonna have to come up at some point. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens with Tom, but um, no, it is not taking over Shiv's story. It's, it's also just a very, uh, you know, interesting thing that's compounding you know her her decision making. Um, a similar substance thing coming up that I'm seeing coming up with Roman and pills. Like he's been seen with a you know a pill bottle. It's not the telltale like pharmacy orange clear, but he's spotted with like a white pill bottle again in the bathroom while he's unpacking his stuff. Like, again, uh, the show, I think, has been very clear about who uses substances and when. Um, I would be very surprised if Roman had like a sudden addiction arc, but it's very hard to predict at this point, especially with Roman's. Um, you know, kind of unraveling. So I don't know if they're toying with us or what.
0: Depend depending what the timeline is like. He's got a he's got a short fuse on that. If that's what they're if that's what they're cooking up on the on the subject of the pregnancy though, you know, just because we need to uh, finally talk about Shiv and Tom a bit more. That the pregnancy it just keeps lurking under the surface of all these conversations that Shiv has every all her actions in the last couple episodes. You know, are sort of informed by that, and you know the way that she's sort of start circling her way back to Tom in this episode, I thought was very interesting because if she's still thinking about her pregnancy as kind of this ticking clock where it's like, obviously she's not going to be able to keep it a secret forever. She's not going to be able to keep it a secret from Tom forever. And if she's thinking about perhaps being forced to go back to Tom, in you know, in some way, you know, because obviously the child is going to keep them together in some sense. She's she's working on getting some leverage over him before perhaps that inevitable reconciliation happens. That's kind of how I thought about her perhaps saving him from the kill list and the olive branch that she offers him at the end when saying, "Hey, would you like to fire Sid Peach uh, from ATN in
2: order to shore up your own position?" I just uh, you, you mentioned the timeline, and just to point out that her doctor said twenty weeks, which is to say five months of being pregnant and that close
1: close to close to 20 weeks and it's more
2: like yeah
1: it's more like halfway halfway there yeah
2: (laughs) which is that not being visibly pregnant and not having told tom are two such huge pills to swallow from this and that the longer she waits the more egregious it's going to be when she comes to tom because the news will be like hey guess what in a couple months you're going to have uh, (laughs) a a son or daughter Uh, no, I know.
1: I I don't know what her plan is here, but it's. Uh... I
2: I do love the idea of this show, which defies convention so much, doing the extremely classic TV finale thing of like if she gives birth in the series finale and like that is a moment that unites everyone or something. Like the terrible version of Succession in my brain. That is exactly how they wrap things up.
1: Oh. Oh, and the baby comes out and it's called Logan. It's a girl. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> But what? But,
1: everybody's happy. But one
2: of the
0: But one of the most fun and unexpected scenes in this episode is the weird kind of like flirt fight between Tom and Shiv <laughs> that happens like, oh my out, God. outside that calispetron screening <laughs> where they just, you know, she just starts kicking gravel a of shoes and go like, oh, your shoes are too white. They're blinding everybody. What was up with and that? Then, and yeah, then, and then, because
1: everybody's because everybody's coming down from Molly and their pupils <laughs> are dilated and they're going to get scared. It was so Funny. and we've
0: we've very rarely seen Shiv like successfully get a rise out of Tom like he's he's pretty restrained in their marriage like he doesn't like blow up at her very often like except for in a uh, Riveraldulter like the dinner party scene with Yeah, uh, with Robin yeah, where he says fuck you and yeah this this scene just kind of felt like the way that she just like very specifically instigates it like goes out of her way to instigate this with tom it just felt like yeah it just felt like foreplay it felt like an opening it felt like a flirtation you know she's been she's using mattson in a way to make tom jealous that's one of her motivations in like spending time with him um and just kind of like trying to awaken his desire for her again
2: she has uh i think really consistently uh, displayed a thrill-seeking romantic lifestyle which is that she hates any form of like normalcy or stagnation and so she goes out of her way like the second that she smelled Herself getting settled with Tom when they go on the vacation. She's proposing the threesome on their wedding night. She's proposing right. the open relationship. And I think that this version of her relationship with, with Tom, as much as it causes her Ajda, I also think she enjoys the fact that she can just, you know, at a moment's notice, decide to spice things up and to like lob a bomb in there and just, you know, to fuck shit up.
1: Yeah, it, it got me thinking, you know, about early on in their relationship, some of what we saw in the in, in early seasons and then you know even just prior to that um that they had this kind of like messy banter and you know even if you go back to like the mystery of tom's black eye (laughs) there was always the speculation that maybe they like uh, a little bit of like rough play um you know some of that surfacing here a little bit with the 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 bullying and the the (laughs) kicking of the shoes yeah so you know they 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 i i think this is maybe um something that their you know relationship was was built around kind of teasing each other but with Shiv's increasing kind of disrespect of Tom throughout the series we got less of it and and more of just the sadness so it does feel like a bit of a a return to that like uh, initial flirty dynamic but it's also brimming with a lot of anger and pain still uh you know they haven't had their full blowout and then of course um there is you know the pregnancy which um no, I think she's, you know, absolutely terrified about and and you know, she needs to, yeah, she needs to get him under her wing a little bit.
2: Do you think um Shiv has ever proposed pegging to Tom, who I have to assume would would decline. He's a good Midwestern boy.
1: <laughs> he, I'm not a hippie Shiv. He said that about a threesome. So <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, that's right.
1: But um yeah, I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked. At
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that ranks on the list of things that Tom is, like, not open to trying. I don't know if I want to speculate about that, but yeah, it's yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's a very it's a very fun scene. The way he like flicks her earlobe and says like her earlobes are, are like thick and chewy like barnacle beads, like very bizarre specific physical insult, and she's like so genuinely weird. taken yeah. aback by it. Like not only that, like Tom is yeah. so game to like go there with her right away, but like the way he escalates it, the way he like steps toward her and she steps
1: back, it's yeah.
0: a great scene between the two of them, and yeah, they play it. They
1: play it so well.
2: The, the scene is like the the tenor of that scene is totally schooly yard yanking on the pigtails like kicking dirt at each other literally Mm -hmm. kicking dirt in this instance yeah that is such like a it's a very juvenile uh juvenile thing which i think is is fun and flirty for them on a certain level yeah
0: so uh i mean yeah i think um i think probably we we are getting obviously we're getting towards the climax of the season we're getting closer to that inevitable big confrontation between the two of them so We'll see what happens. But that's, uh, yeah, this is, so this may be like the happiest scene we get between the two of them <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. Uh, but I was very grateful for it. Um, okay, we're running really long. Um, I just want to circle back to the beginning of the episode, the opening scene with the, the CE bros, as as Hugo puts it um because i mean i don't, don't know
1: listening to music again <laughs> there's a lot of
0: fun details in the scene yes kendall the opening montage of kendall listening to jay-z's the takeover Jay-Z. uh which i was like what are the what is the clearance fee on that song like do you think like how much does that cost because they don't use that kind he's
2: of... he's on the the beatles pay grade i think he's he's up there on the beatles tier
0: yeah yeah i mean they haven't they haven't busted out kendall with rap music in a while i mean that's how you know we've got season one kendall back and yeah. roman's reference got he's the mojo set... season
1: season four money though yeah roman's
0: referenced <laughs> To him sending a barrage of emails early in the morning um but yeah. so yeah, i was just i was i just loved all the details in the scene of them just like bantering around in the office and i was like I, I was just thinking about this with you know jesse armstrong had said like we could spin this out for a few more seasons and make it a more freewheeling kind of fun show and i was like i, I would watch that you know like it wouldn't be as yeah. good as this like very much more contained and emotional and tragic succession that we're getting but it'd be pretty good i would watch it
1: it would yeah it would work
0: and again, there's there's more detail there about like just like the unnecessary personnel. Where like I I like the contrast uh, between Kendall and Roman in this ep- in in that opening scene where Kendall rolls up with his uh, he rejects the unnecessary entourage that Hugo offers him, but he's there with Remy, his body man, and Jess, his assistant. You know, people who you know can't challenge him in any way, whose roles are not to like advise or challenge him in any way. They're just they're just his flunkies. And then meanwhile, Roman has been you know we assume in the office like uh, for hours already being prepped by what looks like a very serious team of staffers who do not appear to be mere flunkies they appear to be people who are like actually really involved in the organization people who we've never seen before who all look very professional so there's a nice contrast between the two of them because they get, they're, they've kind of switched places from where they were in lifeboats back in season one when they first tried this kind of like two-headed ceo operation mm-hmm. where you know now kendall is the wild card right and roman is the one who's taking things seriously Okay, stray thoughts. Other characters we didn't talk about. I'm um, just scrolling through. furniture. We
1: got some good, good Frank and Carl shots. Amazing uh, Frank and Carl on this of, episode. The back, the back of the golf cart. The the peaking duck outside the sauna. I, I was cracking up when they were putting their compression socks on the plane. It took me a second <laughs> to realize what they were doing. And then wait, <laughs> way Carl looks at Tom, he's like, you got a problem?
2: I did. I mean, in that <laughs> moment, the thing I was reminded directly of, I was like, they all don't want to go out like Stan Chara. Like, that is the exact same mentality. <laughs> yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. Like,
1: we are not.
2: I don't like want to basically- die in this way I've heard of.
0: Well, that's not want to well, that's on what, the toilet what, of this plane. <laughs> that's what Tom said the last episode, right? That Logan wasn't wearing his compression right. socks so he could look hot for yeah, Carrie. Yeah, exactly. to impress <laughs> Carrie. That's the subtext of that yeah. saying, which I did not pick up on at first. But yeah, that's, that's great.
2: I do yeah. love uh, when they're on the phone, uh, just a stray moment. Uh, with Connor, they write more on the clipboard, which is another classic thick of it slash uh, in the loop bit. Uh, the, you know, the, the silent note that you hold up out of anger.
1: Yeah, poor Connor. He's just at the f- the funeral home contending with Marsha. I like when he said he was willing to throw his weight around in the embalming room, but he would need protection. Um that <laughs> just cracked me up. Even when Connor is like not prominent in an episode, he always gets at least just like one or two killer lines in. Um Yeah, cuz he
0: says that yeah. uh Marsha wants to put Logan in a kilt like at the Bay City <laughs> Rollers. <laughs>
1: Oh man. Yeah. Logan's funeral will be interesting. Um, who else? We talked, you talked a little bit about Greg, right?
0: Yeah. We talked a little bit about Greg. Uh, he, he, he has a new, he has a new line that he's trying out in this episode. Again, as Tom is sort of adrift and no longer a center of power, Greg is trying to attach himself as an honorary sibling. So he has dubbed him plus the, the three main siblings, the quad squad. Um, he brings that back when, Kendall gives him a task later. and He says, "Yeah, this sounds like Quad Squad type shit," uh, which I thought was, was a good bit. You know, we're we're pretty hard on Greg, but it was, it was a good Greg bit. I'll, I'll give him that. I, I enjoy this. We'll when he
1: did, when, when he when he did the the family thing, I, you know, I got a chuckle out of that. It was funny. Yeah, Shiv's response was "The fuck." <laughs> <It was>, might have <laughs> been might have been funnier, but you know, whatever. Greg, all right. Can hang around, I guess. I
2: figure. I mean, he's got a. He's he's been mostly sidelined in terms of plot functionality this season, which I feel like maybe they're priming for something like the deposition uh, finisher for the season, where it is you know the sort of abruptness with which he is thrust back into relevance uh, becomes a joke unto itself.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't think that again, yeah. we, we talked about this a bit last week. I don't think that Greg is like the end game for the show, like he's gonna be CEO or something like that. But I also think the writers are conscientious enough not to end the show without giving him anything else to do. I think that he will play some role in whatever endgame they have. Yeah, I want to apologize to everybody for spending so much time talking about business and numbers and money in this. There was a very funny, funny I thought it was a very funny Financial Times piece this week that kind of broke down all the numbers and tried to figure out like how much waystar is actually worth just like look like freeze framing and look at all the screen grabs of like stock tickers we have and like dissecting all the bits of information in the dialogue and stuff and they eventually just like had to kind of throw their hands up and i was like well yeah yeah i mean the uh we 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 tried to chart the kind of emotional logic and the power dynamics in this episode but that's basically as far as you want to push it other than that you have you kind of hit a red line of like the writers are saying do not pay close enough attention to this stuff all right it is kind of just like lore (laughs) ipsum placeholder stuff at a certain level it's, it does. It doesn't all exactly track. Sorry, guys.
2: Oh, and um, <clears throat> one of my favorite lines from this week was uh, when. Rowan is telling off Mattson. Uh, we see a recurring thing with him is that when he gets really flustered, his insults start to, he he has a sort of like broader spray of insults. And so he says, you inhuman fucking dog man, you. Which is kind of just like someone who's at the end of the rope and trying to think of hurtful things to say and just sort of spin out. And
1: people out. say that the dialogue on the show is too sophisticated. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it really sounded too smart
0: when he was calling Matson the C word over and over again. <laughs> I, was like, I was like it's these- a negotiating tactic you stupid, <laughs> <guns."> <laughs> you stupid I was like, these characters are too intelligent great. i don't buy this
1: i'm 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 happy they let culkin you know off the leash there he really yeah he went for it everyone now is uh you know in an emmy tizzy he's going for the lead they can't they, they, it's they, always they, a powerful they can't all thing. win
2: emmys <laughs> 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 so someone's gotta win someone's gotta lose no it's uh it's, it's a very powerful thing because he is so shitty to everyone all the time that when he is uh, really chewing someone out, he goes out of his way. There's always a line where he's like, he makes clear that he's like, I am not just saying this. I'm not joking. I really fucking hate you. Like, this is yeah. not part of just who I am. It's you have actually incurred my wrath in a very real way, in a very personal way. Uh, and when he always lifts it to that register, I always like, ooh, I get a little mm, yeah. I get A little chill <laughs> there. I love that.
1: He's great at it. And, and I like how Kendall sort of hung back you know he says like rome like when he starts but but he lets him go and he Kendall looks kind of old in that scene he almost he almost looks like his father you know it's a it's a little bit strange
0: yeah Cohen unleashes that kind of little kid sense of hurt and vulnerability very well in that scene and yeah that 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 right. that's that, that fu- just so
1: funny that it yeah
0: that final moment of uh, when Matson calls Shiv, to says, "Can you take a picture of your brothers and send it to me?" That was that was that was my biggest laugh of the episode. Just the absolutely dead drained look on Kendall's face is so good. <laughs> Amazing face acting from Jeremy Strong. Just like again, how seriously he takes the role uh, ends up with like the funniest bits of comedy. It's exactly the right approach. Um Charles, uh, this was a treat to have you. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for hanging in there with us through
2: <laughs> all the business talk. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Deal making.
2: <laughs> no, I love this. You know, when, in, in business, as I understand from having watched television shows about business, it is important <laughs> to cross all your T's and dot all your I's. So I'm, I'm glad to see this kind of diligence.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And you yourself <laughs> has done, have done a lot of uh, crossing T's and dotting I's recently. Uh, you, have a, you
2: have a book out, oh. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A uh, new book is called Colors of Film, colon, The Story of Cinema in 50 Palettes. Uh, it is a sort of survey of the film medium, its politics, its culture, technology, through the lens of color, uh, as explored through 50 films of my choosing. The color, just a very broad swath of history and the globe and scales of production. Uh, I learned a whole bunch of interesting things about chemical processes and the tragic suicide of George Eastman and uh, the racial politics of shooting on film versus shooting on digital. Uh, so many interesting things that I have poured into this book and that I am excited to share with everybody, with film. Uh, I, I've been very pleased with how it's been received by lay people in uh, some industry, you know, people who are really deep into the technical nitty gritty. Uh, pick it up. It's, I think it's a pretty good book. I
0: can vouch for it. I, That's I, awesome. I, I have my yeah. copy upstairs. It's a, it's a handsome volume. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun read. And yeah, always always enjoy reading that. Charles' very prolific kind of you free, freelance these days but you you cover a lot of stuff and uh always always appreciate uh getting your take on uh the, cur- the current cinema as it were you're out there in oh, the well, trenches
2: i i tried to you know you you want me on that wall you need me on that wall i uh just <laughs> I, I had a very rewarding moment just last night where i gave the book to my sweet sweet grandmother uh who, who was just doubled over we went to a play and because I, I gave it to her, she turned to the person next to her and she just shoved this book in this strange woman's face. And she was like, my grandson wrote this. Oh, that is so <laughs> uh, sweet. It was incredibly Aww. sweet. Easily the most rewarding moment of this whole process so
1: Absolutely. far. Absolutely. Oh, my God.
2: So, yeah, it's, it's Ronnie Zalondek approved. You got to pick it up. <laughs> All right, folks, you
0: heard it here. Fantastic. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I want to say thanks again to Charles Bermesco. Thanks to Gabby and to our producer, Dan Black. If you're enjoying the RoyCast, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your app of choice. You can also show your support with a contribution via the Square link in our bio or just by spreading the good word about the podcast. We will be back next week to discuss another new episode of Succession's final season. Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. Make a space for my body. Dig a
3: hole. Push the sides apart. This is what I'm controlling, it's the mold, the inside that I